All right, well, this morning we're going to talk about the uniqueness of God, the uniqueness of God. There's nobody like God, nobody else even close. And some of this is connected to the idea of his holiness that we talked about last night, but it kind of gets developed through the book of Isaiah that God is unique in part because of the language of the covenant of his arrangement with the people of God and how they have departed from that and and they've kind of kept their options open. I, I mentioned that they had options. They had God, they had political alliances and other gods and idols and, and they they had some religion in their life. They had some devotion to God, but it they wanted to keep their options open. They wanted to make sure they had their bases covered and and basically God became one of the ways that they tried to Secure for themselves a happy, peaceful, healthy, successful life. And God says, no, I'm, I'm unique. And as we'll see, it even comes out in, in competitive language. If somebody thinks they're like me, show up and, 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 and show me. Let's see. And God exhibits a certain confidence in self-knowledge that he says, See if there's anybody like me. See if any of the other options measure up. And so uh, it's kind of jarring, like the holiness of God. It kind of confronts us and asks us, uh, what's a priority to you? What what do you have in your life that's a rival to me? And, And does that really have any real chance of standing against me? And so... God is unique. There's nobody like him. And, and it's, it, we're going to be mostly in Isaiah 44, if you want to open your Bibles there. But Isaiah 44 is kind of the final section talking about some of this kind of competitive uniqueness that God has with the other gods, the other options people have. And so even before the section we're really looking at in Isaiah 40, verse 25 and 26, it says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Who's like God? Show, show yourself. Who else made all this besides me? Isaiah 42, verse 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. He's saying, I'm not willing to share this kind of devotion, this kind of faith. Pretty strong language. And while in our situation, we might not exactly have what Isaiah's situation had in terms of, of options, in terms of this God and that God, and, and, and in some cases literally named deities that, that people said, well, have you heard about this one or that one? Um, but we have options. We have ways we might try to secure for ourselves a meaningful, purposeful, happy, secure, comfortable, relationally whole kind of life. We might have a career path that we think, you know, if this works out for me, then I'll be okay. 
I'll be set, I'll be happy, or this relationship, or, or this self-help philosophy, or, or, or this life experience. If I just can get that, then I'll be okay. And God is saying, I'm unique. There's nothing else out there. There's no other options. And as we move into uh, Isaiah 50, or 44, he really lays out the challenge. And really, I mean, he kind of even gets kind of feisty in, in mocking the idea that something else would be able to, to follow through on its promises to you the way he can. And, and he says, I'm not one of the options. I'm the only one. And I'm not just here for, for, uh, to have in a nice little compartment and be useful to you when needed. Uh, I got to thinking about this a lot when I lived in Japan because it's almost exclusively how they think of the gods. They're there for your usefulness. They're kind of impersonal beings, forces, you know, God in the tree, God in the mountain, God in the ocean. And whatever I got to do, whatever bell I got to ring and pray I got to pray and coins I need to toss into the thing, I'll do that so that I can get into the school I need to get into, get the job I need to get, get married to the person I need to get married to, the things that they define as successful and secure. And, and so for a lot of people, even when they're getting into Christianity a little bit, they kind of see it as one of the options. And I remember we had started the church in, in Nagoya, Japan, and had been going for a, a year or two at this point. And there was a, a young lady who had become a Christian at another church, but she started attending our church and, and was energetic about her faith, and, and she would want to talk after church, and she would ask for random advice, you know, and, and she wanted to talk to me one day about her business plan to start an English language school, very lucrative, competitive environment for English teaching in Japan, and, and she was good at English, and so she thought, I could, I could start this. And, and she was, so what do you think? How should I do this? And I, well, I'll try to be helpful. I, and so I, I told her about a friend of mine who I, I knew who was an Australian guy in Japan and had taught English at a, at a school for a while. And then he had a, a kind of a clientele of personal students that he would tutor. And then after tutoring for a while, he kind of had a critical mass of students that he could kind of gather together as a, as a school. You know? So I encourage her, before you dump a bunch of money into you know, renting a facility and marketing and branding, try to kind of grassroots build up a clientele until you get some momentum, and then roll out the, the, you know, the bigger enterprise. I was just, I've seen that work, you know, just giving my two cents, kind of random, but whatever. And she was like, oh, that is great advice. This is why I became a Christian. You know, I heard a guy share his testimony. that He became a Christian, and things went well for him, and he got successful. This is what I'm looking for. Thank you so much. Great advice. I never saw her again. She got what she was looking for. Some, some, a little bit of God, a little bit of this. Just enough to be able to secure something that for her was really God in her life. Success, happiness, some sense of purpose and direction. And I thought, after the fact, I, I kind of, I think I really screwed that up. I think I, I think I probably should have said, you know what, hey, there's lots of strategies you can use out there, but in, in the context of what we're talking about here, I want you to know that God is unique, that He deserves your soul devotion, 
And he's not willing to share your devotion with any other. And, uh, and if we're not careful, that same way of thinking about God, even though for us maybe that seems very distant, the, the, all the idols and options in, in Israel in, in Isaiah's time, or an animistic context like Japan where they got 180,000 gods to pick from and God's one of them. But for us, success, relationships, a philosophy, a self-help strategy can set themselves up as rivals. And in Isaiah 44, God speaks and says, I'll challenge you to think about these idols. So in starting in verse 6, he says, and it's a lengthy section. I'll, I'll kind of read it and take our time thinking as we go. This is what the Lord says. Verse 6 of Isaiah 44. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord and Almighty. That's who's talking. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. It's kind of laying out the challenge. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. He's saying, what, you, what have you been up to since I created and what do you see coming? Tell me, predict the future. You can't do that? Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and, and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and he loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. He's saying a, a, a blacksmith can make an idol, and then guess what? He gets tired. Earlier he had said, I never get tired. Uh, the, the carpenter measures out with a line and marks out an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it into a human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak, he let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. He used it as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and, washed and, and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. So he's saying, so an idol maker lets a tree grow, chops it down, then he uses some to make a fire, warm himself, make some bread. Half of the wood he burns in the fire over it as he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. And then, verse 17, From the rest of it he makes a god. His idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. 
Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the understanding or understand, uh, knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals and roasted meat and I ate it. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads them. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? So God's getting feisty and he's saying, think about, let's get logical with it. You have a tree grow, you chop it down, you make an idol, you make some food, and then you ask the idol to save you. The very thing that you constructed, you now turn to in a time of need and think it will provide you some sort of hope and some sort of security. And, and you've invested so much of yourself in this and reinforced this, this strategy of life that you can never even have the clarity of mind to stop and think, gee, I guess this very thing I manufactured wouldn't have any power to save me. He's saying, how, how silly to think that something you made can save you. And at a time in life when we're, we're building up our abilities, right? You're gaining knowledge, you're pursuing a degree, you're getting skills, you're finding that internship and that development opportunity that will set you up for a career. You're finding that special someone who, who, who completes you and who gets you and who will will be the, the perfect match for you. You're investing a lot of time and energy in that, and that's a fitting, responsible thing. I'm not trying to talk anybody out of getting a degree or having a plan. But to, to invest ourselves in that and then think it holds for us some promise, some hope, beyond just the mundane of, of making our way through life. How's that any different than the person that crafts for themselves an idol of wood and then kneels down before it. Jesus, much, much later, would say, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That our hearts tend to follow our investment. The things we put time and, and heart and, and energy and creativity in, our heart begins to value those things. I mean, it, there's almost this self-perpetuating thing. We have to justify the investment. We have to say this, this was worth it. All this time and effort and energy and, and, and passion and blood, sweat and tears, it has to have been worth it. And so our heart follows. And it kind of grows in our minds and hearts how significant it is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And so God is mocking the idea that anything other than Him can save you. Anything other than Him can provide that meaningfulness and, and, and peace and, and joy and a sense of optimism for your future. He's, he's saying, I'll, I'll, I'll challenge anybody. Let them show up. I think of some time earlier in the history of Israel when the prophet Elijah, kind of the OG prophet, Isaiah's great, everybody kind of looked back, Elijah kind of started this thing off. And maybe you remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. 
He was, Elijah was feisty. I don't know how you envision Old Testament prophets. I kind of thought of them as just old bearded guys, you know, pontificating. Elijah was ready to throw down. He said, let's go. Let's have a challenge. I'll, I'll, hundreds of you, that's fine. 400 to 1, I'm not, I'm not scared. And he, he, he kind of has the same tone that God does in, in Isaiah 44. Where's your deity? So he says, let's have a challenge. You put up altar with an offering on it. I'll put it up on altar and, and an offering, with an offering on it. And whoever God shows up and lights this altar on fire is the winner. And so they do all these things, and it talks about them getting in this frenzy. They're cutting themselves. They're dancing and singing, doing anything. And Elijah's like, where is he? Maybe he's busy. Had his to-do list. Um, he, there's some, some allusions. It might even, he might even say, what's your God in the bathroom or something? You got him, caught him at a time he's a little occupied, occupado. And, uh, and then he says, I'll, I'll, I'll pour water on mine. I don't care. And the fire of God comes down and consumes the altar. God says, I'll challenge anybody. And, and he's inviting us to have as much confidence in him as he has in himself. He's inviting us to see him as, as fulfilling and trustworthy and faithful as he knows he is. All he's trying to get us to do is agree with him about him. Now, I realize that that can be troubling for people. And I remember reading through some of this stuff for the first time and saying, wow, like, God is really unyielding on this issue. I'm the best thing going. You can take it to the bank. There's nothing else out there as good as me. For some people, this is actually the thing that, that makes it difficult for them to to like God or believe in God. Actually, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, has been very open about her faith journey. And she grew up with kind of a form of Christian faith. And, but as an adult, she was reading the Bible. And this issue, she's talked publicly about this, this issue of God saying, I will not share my glory with anyone else. I am a jealous God, me and me only. Um, she said, I just, it just did not sit well with my spirit. That doesn't sound like God to me. God is all loving. God is in everything. And so she very knowingly departed from Christianity to a more eclectic, custom-built spirituality. You know, God is whatever you envision God to be. God is whatever you need God to be. God is, is, is there for you. And He is catering to you because you're the center of the universe. And God says, I disagree. I'm the center of the universe. And the sooner you get on board with that, the happier you'll be, the more peaceful you'll be, and the more you will be in line with the grain of the universe and in the flow of where I'm heading. And C.S. Lewis, Christian author and scholar, uh, professor of literature at Oxford, smart guy. He became a Christian when he was 29, and, and he's written and open about his same struggle with this issue. Except, whereas Oprah says, I can't accept it. God is too demanding. C.S. Lewis says, what is the logic of this? And he writes on this in his reflections on the Psalms. Is God just vain and needy? You know, worship me, compliment me, look at me. 
Is it just vanity? And, and he continued to press in on this issue. He continued to read the actual words of Scripture and see who God is and what he had to say. And he came to a place where he can hear, he says, I, I could hear this as good news. Because if it's true that God is the most majestic, holy, beautiful, satisfying, reliable, pure thing in the universe, to direct our attention to anything other than himself, to direct our attention to ourself, would actually be unloving. It would actually be holding out on us. If he's actually the best thing in the universe, to say, ah, oh, but I mean, pursue a career and chase your dream and self-actualize and, and, and find that special someone and then you'll be okay. That, how unloving is that? You know there's something better than those things. And you know that it's you. And so that actually our longings for fulfillment and joy and, and peace find their, their destiny in God. And that God is, God is, is not needy. In fact, uh, there's a couple times in Scripture where, where God is referred to as the blessed God. Just a little bit of a strange phrase at first glance. But it essentially means, blessed means happy, satisfied, full, Everything's going fine for him. There's this idea that God's just fine within himself. Uh, he doesn't need us. There's not a deficiency in him that we tell him how complete. He's fine. It's actually out of his great generosity that he created us and allows us to enjoy him and participate with him. He didn't need us. He's sharing himself with us. And so, so C.S. Lewis said, I... I came to a place where my heart and mind could accept it and see that my longing for joy and peace and these things that, that seem created by God and God's unyielding demand for worship are not at odds. In fact, they, they reach their, their intended goal in perfect harmony. That my enjoyment of God and his demand for worship are, are, are the perfect fit with one another. And sometimes it takes our idols letting us down to help us realize this. I remember being on a trip several years ago uh, with a really wealthy guy from Kentucky. He had founded this company, something in engineering, uh, water systems and, and management processes, and he built this company up. And as a relatively young guy, sold the company for something like $110 million dollars. Cash. Boom. And he continued to work as the CEO of the company. So this one of these dream scenarios where you build the company up and you sell your portion as an owner and cash in and yet still drawing a salary as a CEO of a successful company. Living the dream. Uh, I know we got some engineering majors in here. I mean, this, this would be like right about as good as it gets in the world of engineering. And several years into his work as the CEO of the company that he founded and sold, he gets fired from his own company. And this, when I was getting to know him, was a good 15 years later. Now as an older man, um, sitting at a, at a dinner table at a hotel in Israel, 
he's opening up about the devastating impact of that event in his life. It was, it was a form of death for him in terms of his identity, in terms of his sense of meaningfulness. This is everything he had poured himself into. This is his passion. This is his gifting. This is his dream. He had it made, and then in a moment, it was all gone. And no amount of money actually settled that issue of an identity. Uh, uh, the thing he gets up and tackles every day. He's one of those hard-charging personalities, and, and this was his thing. It was his idol. He made it. He built it. And he bowed down to it. And then it broke. And it, was, it, it went to ashes before his very eyes, just like Isaiah says in, in Isaiah 44. Or God speaking. Um, but here's the part. I mean, and he was tearing up, you know, talking about this. And he says, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I was still young enough to to have some life left to realize what this was. That it was an idol. It was a rival. And from that point on, when he was able to kind of pick himself up and get reinvolved in church, and he became an elder at his church, and he founded a consulting company where him and some other business guys would fly to Indonesia several times a year and work with uh, with people in poverty to try to help them kind of build, build a small business, some of the sustainable help to, to impoverished peoples where you, you can't just send money over and it all goes well. You've got to actually help people kind of climb the next rung of the ladder. And so even though in certain ways he was a failed businessman, he knew how to build something from the ground up. And so he was using that experience and those skills to contribute to others and, of course, all along the way, sharing his faith, because you've got to see Indonesia is one of those places you can't just show up and get a missionary visa. You can't just show up and say, I'm a pastor. It's, it's a, a closed country in that kind of way. But you can come in as a business consultant. And so the, the energy and the passion and the, the fire in, it, in his eye and his voice as he talks about sharing with the people in Indonesia and, and using that as a platform to share his faith. I mean, the, the energy and joy from that far outweighs the joy of the, in, in the security he was trying to secure for himself through his career. And, and he just, it, he, he looked like a kid on Christmas talking about this. That now that I get to go help people and use, use these skills to share my faith with people that actually a pastor would have a hard time ever getting in touch with. I'm just so grateful that my life got destroyed in time. And I just think, why, why have to hear a story like that and then go through the, the same journey ourselves? Why not take the life lesson and see someone else's idols fail them and just go ahead and get on with the, the business of exclusively devoting ourselves to God and His purposes in our life. Go ahead and speed up the process and say, trust that somebody else is telling the truth when they say it didn't fulfill me, it didn't secure the hope I, I thought it would, and the peace and the happiness, and, and it, I was so wrapped up in it, and I needed it, and it failed me. It's like when people win the lottery and, and say that it hasn't really improved their life, and that no amount of money can make them happy. A lot of us think, 
Well, I sure sort of like to give it a try myself. You know, I'll try me. Try me. Give, me. give me the 100 million, and we'll see if I'm not happier. It doesn't matter how many famous and wealthy people tell us fame, wealth, whatever, doesn't do it for me. Some, for some of us, deep down in our hearts, we still think somehow it will do the, do the trick. And God is over here saying, I dare you. Show me anything besides me that can save you, that can make you whole. I, I'm going to bet on myself 100 times out of 100. Anybody who wants to can line up. Who put the stars in the sky besides me? Who holds them in place perfectly? Who made you? And what's interesting is the way this passage kind of closes out, after talking about someone who makes an idol that they think will take care of them, he reminds them yet again who made whom. Verse 21, Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, he's talking to the people as a whole, you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So again, even in this provocative, antagonistic, competitive language, there's grace. I made you. I know you better than you know yourself. And I won't forget you. I won't leave you in this mess. I'm redeeming you. Return to me. Come back to me. Hurry up and come back to me. Don't waste a lifetime chasing other things, pursuing other things, investing in other things before you finally come back around to where you started. And so I I would ask you to think about what are the rivals, the rival idols in your life? What is it that might set itself up or you might even set up in competition with God? What is it that stands between you and a wholehearted devotion to God? That kind of crystal clear, laser vision focus on God. I've always loved that story of of Mary and Martha and Jesus and his disciples at their home. And Martha is, is, is worrying herself about many things and she's trying to keep up with social expectations and secure for herself a sense of meaningfulness. And there's Mary just sitting there listening to Jesus speak. And Martha even comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell her to do her part. You know how this all works. You know the social expectations. You know what a, a woman hosting a, a, an up-and-coming famous rabbi is supposed to do right now. And he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about many things, but only a, a, only a little is needed. Mary's chosen what's better. That focus, that adoring gaze, that, that clarity and attentiveness to Jesus. And Jesus demands that kind of exclusivity too. A lot of people think Jesus is somehow lightening up the the pressure. He says, deny me and I'll deny you. If you want to follow me, you got to say no to everybody else. It's me only. Uh, Take up your cross and follow me. But if you do, you will see that you have actually found what your heart has been longing for all along. Go ahead and get rid of those idols. Go ahead and throw away the, the block of wood that you bow down to and return to me. And so what would that look like for you to have that wholehearted devotion to God?
Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have shared with us this fiery heart that you have, that you know you're the best thing going. You know that there's no one else out there that can save, that can satisfy, that can comfort your people like you can. And while it took the people of Israel decades to come back around from the time these words were spoken in Isaiah 44, and while it took my friend Craig uh, getting fired from his own company to come to that place, I pray that, that we could go ahead and just get on with it and be all in with you now. To go ahead and get rid of those rivals now So we have that much more life left to be wholly devoted to you. I pray you would just sweep away the the facade, the, the deception, the lies that these things promise us that they can't follow through with and trust in the promises that you've made that you can follow through with. I pray that we would be as confident and optimistic about you as you are that we, we will be as, as bold and, and affectionate and focused on you as you are. You know yourself. You know how satisfying you are. You know how faithful you are. Help us just to get on board with you. All for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.